If someone were to ask you how things were going, let's just say for the sake of argument, let's say things have, have not been going well in your life. It's less than favorable circumstances. If someone were to ask you how is it going, let's say they sent that via email and you were to reply, or you were to reply via a message to them, I wonder what that would be. If you were feeling pain in multiple areas, maybe the least of which would be physical, but emotional and just a time of suffering, I wonder what your answer would be. One of the beautiful parts of Scripture is sometimes the, the curtain gets rolled back and you get a look at someone else's answer. And today, I want to ask Tyler Fry to come and read for us uh, Philippians 1, uh, verse 12 to 18. So it's Philippians 1. If you pick up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 677. He's going to read uh, verses 12 to 18. Tyler, come and read for us. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Did you hear that? Paul is talking about his circumstances. The last words that Tyler read were, I rejoice in that. Just remind us of the circumstances. Paul is in prison, and he's there because he was guilty as charged for spreading the good news of the message of Jesus. That's why he's there. And still he says, I rejoice. I can rejoice. It's not that hard for me. If if we be really frank, it's not hard for me to imagine something else being written. If I were going through some of the sufferings that he was enduring. In fact, if you had asked me in those same circumstances, how's it going, Curtis? Which I I assume the Philippians wanted to know, how's it going, Paul? I think my letter might have sounded different. I might have written something like this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I can really see no purpose for what has happened to me. Being imprisoned hasn't resulted in anything good that I can tell. And most of the other Christians are even more fearful because I'm imprisoned so that the mission I gave my life to is really having no effect. Some are actually preaching Christ, but they only do it to capitalize on my weakness. They make my life even more miserable. And so... I find myself more and more sliding into despair. I don't think it's hard to imagine that kind of thing being written. If we were going through suffering like Paul was enduring. So what made the difference? He did not write that. He wrote something very different. So what, what made the difference? 
Well, I can, I can assure you it wasn't because he had a few life hacks that, that were working for him. It isn't because he found this place where if he clicked on this, it was five simple steps to a much easier life. It was, it was not because of that. It was because he had been shaped by a certain perspective. And I do want us to look at Paul, but I'd rather us not just look at Paul, but kind of through Paul to see how can we have that same perspective. How can our perspective be so shaped where when we face things that are hard and they're complicated and they're not what we ask for, and we feel the pressure from them that we have a similar perspective. I want us to notice first today that Paul's perspective largely was shaped by what I'm going to call a big God theology. A big God theology. And don't be scared off by the word theology. So it basically means what you understand to be true about God, what is true about God, kind of the, how we put all that together. So the fact is, everyone's a theologian. It just kind of, there are good theologians and bad theologians, because everybody has some opinion on God, all of us. But do we have a big God theology? What do I mean by that? A big God theology is an understanding that God never hits dead ends, to which he goes, oh, I, didn't, I hadn't prepared for that. Hadn't planned on that one. He's never confused. He never has to stop and say, I need some directions and some guidance on the best way to get from here to there now. He's never asleep. He's never at the mercy of fate. Now, a big God theology recognizes he designs and he orchestrates and he oversees and he works things out for our good, for his glory. That's what the text says, and, and it says it kind of in a, in a veiled way. But it reminds us he's, he's the God who can direct circumstances in such a way, in verse 12, that all the circumstances, so this is what Paul would say, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me, kind of my, my affairs, my circumstances, the things that have happened to me, that sounds kind of passive, but God was directing those in such a way, in verse 12, he says they've actually served the gospel. In verse 13, the gospel gets on the radar of the imperial guard like the the elite forces in the military of Caesar. And the gospel is going to that very difficult place. How did that happen? Paul knows there's a big God who enabled those circumstances to happen. Verse 14, brothers are becoming more confident in the Lord. Would that just magically happen? No, there's a big God that stands behind their confidence even as one of their own is being persecuted. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. I mean, all these seem like passive verbs, but the actions are being done and God is the one acting. And Paul says, I rejoice in all that. I rejoice that despite prison, God is no less sovereign. I rejoice in the fact that although conditions are, everybody recognizes this is less than ideal. God is still big, and one of our main issues is that we can, like, give lip service to a God that's big. I mean, we certainly want that, but it doesn't feel really good at times when we think, you know, God's big, but I'm pretty small. We don't like to feel small. We kind of resonate, you know, like, our story is, I am the master of my fate, 
I am the captain of my soul. Say, so, oh, that's it, right there. Until life hits you in the face. And then you don't feel so much like the captain of anything. When outside circumstances begin to press on, and I, you can certainly try to summon determination, and good, good for us when we do. There's something that make, makes us recognize. I'm pretty small in the scope of the 7 billion people on this planet. In light of the universe. And Paul knows that. What you hear from Paul, though, is not this, like, resignation. Okay, I'm just going to be the punching bag of the world. It's not a resignation. It's actually a joyful trust. Saying, I would not want it any other way than God being big, even if it means I feel very small. God being all-powerful would be absolutely terrifying if he weren't also all-wise and all-loving so that we could trust him. I hope you're familiar with his passage, and it just kind of drops down right there at the end of Genesis where Joseph, a, a character in the Bible, is looking back to his life, which was awful, awful. Some of, the, some of the things he had to deal with in the family dysfunction that were, were painful. And he had a big God theology. I know that because he says, while you, my brothers who, who caused him so much problem, while you meant it for evil, God was not handcuffed by any of this. He was directing these circumstances for good. You hear Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good for those who love him for those who are the called according to his purpose. Even if we look at like how horrible the cross is, even there, Acts 2.23 reminds us this was God's determined plan, that Christ would go to the cross. God didn't just like have to step away one day and say, man, the earth just got out of my control and look what happens. The Son of God gets crucified. God is working these things out, these horrendous things for good. So Paul can face these circumstances, which are awful, which are challenging, which are hard, which I, I wouldn't wish on anybody. But in the midst of that, Paul says, I, I have a big God. So much, so much so that although we would expect, like when a person goes to prison for their faith, we might expect, okay, less people are going to be eager about sharing their faith and there's going to be less converts because there's going to be less sharing about sharing faith. Actually... There were unexpected converts to Christianity and new heights and boldness in sharing the message of Jesus. What shaped Paul? A big God, theology, and we'll find that throughout the, throughout the book of Philippians. What else shaped Paul? In his, his perspective where he could say, I rejoice in these kind of circumstances. I think the other, the, uh, another thing to notice would be the priority that he had, the priority he made of the gospel of Jesus. This was his priority. This was his central reason for living. So if we asked Paul, like, why are you living? He would say, I have a priority of the advance of the gospel of Jesus. This is what I'm giving my life to. Paul, what is your life all about? It's it's about the advance of the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it. Look look in the text. I, I want us to go through some of these verses and see how much of a priority it was. For Paul, so in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In verse 13, he says, I want you to know my imprisonment is for Christ. 
Verse 14, there's a boldness uh, on the part of others to speak the word. Verse 15, he talks about some preaching Christ. And verse 17, some proclaiming Christ. And verse 18, Christ being proclaimed. And because Christ is proclaimed, I can rejoice in that. Do you see it? I mean, he's saying it in different ways. The gospel, the word, Christ. But he's really saying the same thing. It's like, so one place he'll talk about, I, I want the gospel to be spread. And then he'll also say, I want Christ preached. Is there something different between the gospel and Christ? Well, you put it together like this. The gospel is the good news about Christ Jesus, about Jesus. So they're really, they're really synonyms here. What is the good news about Jesus? Because Paul said, it's worth giving your life to. It's worth living 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years that the Lord gives you. It's worth giving your whole life to. It's worth suffering for. What is, I don't want to assume anything, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because sometimes you ask that question and someone might respond, well, it's, it's kind of trying to be a good person and, and try to have God in your life. That's the gospel. But we're not left in the dark as to what the gospel is, what the good news of Jesus is. The story starts, and it is a story, it's a message, it's a story of, maybe you've heard this a million times, but maybe it needs to become fresh to you, even if you've heard it a million times. Or maybe you, you wouldn't know how to answer, like, what is the gospel? Sounds like a church word, I'm not sure what it is. It starts with a God who makes everything perfect, and even makes, like, humans in his image, all humanity, in his image. Everything's perfect originally. He gives humans an assignment to rule over the earth that he's made. And pretty immediately, humans rebel against God. Say, I'm not going to do it your way. I'll do it my way. And it wasn't just like one or two. It's all of us who've rebelled against God. We've decided we want things our own way. And because of that, our relationship with God immediately is broken. Our relationship with each other goes south. Our relationship, even in this world, is, is, is broken. And a lot of the Old Testament is this determined plan of God to rescue humans from their sin. It unfolds in the life of the nation of Israel. Do you know the gospel that Paul was saying, I'll give my life for this? See, in the Old Testament, there began to be a recognition that there needed to be a person, a person who could like rule over God's people, a, a human being that could rule over God's people, but they would need to be perfect. They would need to be sinless. Who would be the one that could come, who could rule over God's people, but do so in a way that's sinless? And who could be the one that would go between God and humans, God who's perfect and humans who are sinful? Who could reconcile God and man? Who could... Who could do something about God's righteous wrath towards sin? Who could stand in the way of that? Who could live that, that perfect life? Who could, who could pay for sins, sins that we've all committed? Who, who could be the one that would take all the sin upon themselves, uh, on himself so that the, the rest of the world could live? Who could be the one that would guarantee a future, making all things new, cleaning us, forgiving us, giving us hope in the end? What the Bible says is the good news of Jesus is that all of that is wrapped up into a human who is 100% human, but also 100% God. It's God the Son, Jesus Christ. 
This is, he's the only one that would fit that job description of needing to be all these things. God's rescue effort is wrapped up in Jesus, one who can right every wrong, one who can forgive sin, the one who can make all things new, the one who can rule as a perfect king. I'll tell you what, I, when I came to faith, it was a, as a child, I don't think I processed 80% of what I just said to you. I processed enough to know I needed a savior and Jesus came in my place. But the more I learn about this savior, who I, I was introduced to almost from the time I could talk, the more I've grown to love his authority and his rule, the more I recognize how amazing forgiveness really is. How strong he is, what it means for him to take nails that he didn't deserve, that I deserved, to take mocking that he didn't deserve, that I deserved, and to do so in love. What it means to know the surpassing worth of him. His love, what it means to know him, what it means to be known by him, what it means to be a part of his body, which is the church. It means something to give your life, not just to an idea, but to a person. It's interesting, I love to read, and I read a good bit throughout the year, uh, particularly with history and military history. It's pretty amazing to go back in time with some of the uh, events where like, great courage was shown. So I think uh, of books I've read about D-Day or, or Guadalcanal or Iwo Jima, and I think of, of some of the courage that was shown. And I've read a, a lot of those books. What I've never read is of an individual who said, you know, I, I went ahead and charged because I thought in that moment of free market capitalism. And I thought that's something worth charging for. I've never read, like in that moment of like right before I go, I just thought of a democratic republic. I thought, wow. Or I thought of this political ideology. I've never read that. You know what I've read time and time again? What gave courage in that moment to advance was a person. Sometimes it was a sergeant. Sometimes it was a, a comrade in arms. Sometimes it was thinking about a family member back home. But how often it related to a person. And this is where Paul is going. Paul has no interest in advancing a club all around the Mediterranean. He has no interest in, in advancing some sort of philosophy, a different take on life. That is not what made him advance. That's not what made him suffer like he did. That's not what fueled his drive so that everybody would know. It's that there was a person named Jesus Christ. And that message, that message was worth sharing. And so it is with us. What should fuel us is the person of Jesus. Knowing the, the darkness of this world and knowing hope can only come, not through getting like a, a philosophy or your politics right or all Hope will come through a person named Jesus Christ. That's what we desire to advance. And when that shapes you, Paul can say, put me in prison. But if the gospel is going forward, that's what I gave my life to to begin with. It wasn't a club. It wasn't a philosophy. It was a person. And if he's being proclaimed then I can endure anything. When this is the priority, your perspective changes. 
I just want to push in a little bit here because I often find in my own heart that my, the priority of my life, what I give my life to, often isn't specifically Jesus. I'd like to say it is, and I guess I could write that, and technically that would be the desire of my heart, but functionally, a lot of times that's not the way it works itself out. You know, when, when, when something drives your life, then you begin to look at how all these things in your life can be used to further that, that ambition. So, I mean, God has entrusted you with things that are really not your own, but you're a steward of. So I think of how I might use my time, how I might use my education, how I might use my, my home, how I might use my marriage. Are those used, like Paul, to advance the gospel? I wonder, have you thought, like, how can I use my retirement to advance the message of the person of Jesus Christ? How might I use my singleness to advance the message of Jesus? How might I use my parenting, my pain, my occupation, my gifts, my hobbies, my studies? If God has entrusted those to me at this point in time, how can I use those to advance the message of Jesus? How can I use my friendships, my talents, my skills? How can I use my suffering? How can I use my cancer? How could I use my poverty? How could I use my citizenship? How could I use my status? How could I use my influence? Not just for my own benefit, but for the good news of Jesus. Or do I have my own agenda and I use all those things I just named to kind of advance my agenda, to make me happy in the moment so I can identify exactly who I want to be and this is who I am in the world, deal with it. For so much of my life, not just in the past, but even in in the present, I find that it's very easy for my priority for living to be something else. Oh, sometimes it's like control. My priority in life is like, I got to get control of my life. I'm going to run it like I want it run. If anything gets in the way of that, like I'm either going to fight or I'm going, going to go in despair. Or, or it's the approval of others. That's the driving ambition. If that group or if those people would just notice me, if, they would, if I could be a, a part of that group, then like life would be worth living. Or maybe it's comfort if I could just have a lot more money. But yeah, I, at this point, I'd take a little more money to just be a little bit more comfortable so that I didn't have to worry about this, that, and the other. I'm just driving to try to get to the place where I'm I'm a little bit more comfortable. Or, or perhaps it's a relationship. Or perhaps it's the approval of your parents that means everything to you. Or perhaps it's your grades. Or perhaps it's your kids turning out a certain way. And if, if, it could, if that could go well, then life would be worth living. But everything I've just talked about, like nothing can hold the weight of all the expectations of life pressing on it. Nothing that I've just named other than Jesus Christ can hold the weight of everything in your life being kind of directed toward that goal being met. The only thing that can hold that weight is Jesus Christ. God's been kind enough to humble me by showing me way too often, and it's not a fun kind of humbling, that, Curtis, you have made this your priority, but I'm your priority. 
And I'm not like number 17 priority. I'm what you give your life to. It's a war not to let something else be the driving influence of your life. But at its heart, the gospel is this message of a person who lived, died, rose again to be your everything. Is that shaping your perspective? As you read through the life of Paul, and you absorb how he, like, how he gave his life for that. I think there's another thing that actually shaped his perspective. Certainly was a big God theology and certainly was like this priority of getting out the message of Jesus. But I, I think there's another dimension of this and that is the cost of following Jesus also shaped Paul's perspective. And how could he say, I rejoice even when he's in some of the most difficult circumstances. Because he knew that following Jesus came at a cost. It shouldn't surprise us that it, it does, but it often does, doesn't it? That, like, oh, it costs something to follow Jesus. Jesus told us. So this wasn't bait and switch on Jesus' part, where he, said, where he promised one thing, but then, like, the fine prince said, oh, and it's going to be hard too. So Jesus, Jesus said up front, Luke 9, 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus isn't Like, there's no surprise here. Jesus said we would have tribulation. He said there would be a cost of taking up our cross and following him. Matter of fact, Paul would even say to believers in Acts 14, he would encourage them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. When we recognize there's a cost, it shapes our perspective. We're not so caught off guard by the fact that it it costs something to follow Jesus. What's challenging is sometimes that cost takes surprising turns. But Paul is talking in, in verse 15 to 18 about this surprising cost that he probably did not expect. And that is there are people that were preaching Christ, but their motives were, were off. They were doing out of envy and rivalry. So their, their motivation was to preach Christ and at the same time, wish the worst on Paul and use his misfortune for their advantage. I mean, how messed up. It's hard to even process, like, what goes through your head to try to advance your cause at this guy's expense? I, I don't understand all that. And Paul surely didn't understand it all either as he's sitting in prison, knowing others are glad to take advantage of his situation. But Paul knows the cost. He knows this is coming. It's not always easy to follow Jesus. One of our main issues with all of this is that we think following Jesus, we make that commitment, decision, kind of stake our lives in that direction. We think, well, that should make things easier, but often it makes harder or complicated. Some of that cost comes in unexpected ways. We give our lives for the Lord and no one, absolutely no one notices. We bear the cost of like, we gave this for the Lord, but then like, no one ever says thanks. Or, or I remember in, I, I went to Christian school, Christian college. 
And, you know, kind of it would make sense that to follow Christ, like really, really wanting to pursue what God wants for you in a Christian school, in a Christian college, like it should be easier rather than harder. So imagine my surprise when that wasn't the case. We're actually to try to keep a, a, a pure thought life and a pure mind and heart and mouth. Like that came at the expense of fitting into this crowd or that crowd. Like, well, wait a minute. I, I mean, shouldn't it be easier? I, I've decided to follow Jesus. Why, why this cost? This doesn't seem the cost that I would expect. Sometimes our cost, the cost we bear, is not what we expect because we have these dreams and plans and they just never take shape. We begin to think, the Lord, I was going to do something great for you and the Lord has a different, different pathway. Sometimes we think God will use our strengths and what God decides to use and the cost we bear is he uses our weakness. And we feel weak for a while. And we struggle with like a, a, a purpose. Like one, one time we had a strong purpose in life, but now we don't. And in that weakness, we feel disoriented. And yet God is working through that. Maybe he works through the, the frailty or, or the, the disease or the ignorance or the, the lack of confidence. And we think, no, what God would work through is confidence and strength and power and health and... I read the Bible and God works through often just the opposite things and takes the strong things and brings those to nothing and takes the weak things and lifts those up. And we kind of scratch our head going, I I thought, Lord, the cost would be like the strength of my good years, but it seems like the cost is going to be, my life's going to be hard and I'm going to feel pressure. But Paul says it's all worth it to follow Jesus. I'm just grateful that Christ is being proclaimed. He doesn't seem surprised that it's hard to follow Jesus. What Paul is not is a robot. I think sometimes I, I think that way. So robot Paul, well, sure, he can handle this. Injustice, he's tough. He can handle injustice. He doesn't, he doesn't even feel injustice. The lack of freedom that comes from being in prison. Ah, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, he's strong. But he's human, right? He feels personal vendettas, people motivated to harm you. He feels someone else's selfishness. He feels the abrupt and what seems to be a limiting change of plans. He feels that, and so do you. Doesn't mean you don't feel the consequences of poor decisions of others the effects of disease and their life-taking impact or the hurt of the conflict. But in all of this, he says, I can rejoice. What is shaping your perspective? Today, what, what is it? Something is. What's amazing, I, I mean, you can go in a high school, you can go to people in their midlife, you can go to a, a, a senior citizen's retirement center. And you can see two people almost in the same exact circumstance of life and their perspectives could not be more different. Today, I want to ask you, is a big God, your understanding of how big he is, is that shaping you? Is this recognition that you are not your own, but you are to give your life for for the good news of Jesus, to make much of him, even if that means little of you? Are, Are you letting that shape your current circumstances? Are you recognizing that, yes, there is a cost? 
Is that shaping? God is writing a story through our lives. There's a a letter written here, but God's writing a story through our own lives. What is it saying? What is our perspective? How do you view Jesus Christ? I ask you to bow your head. I, I do want us to take a moment and evaluate our perspective. In a moment, we will remind ourselves via a song that nothing is wasted in our life. In the meantime, let's pray to God. But as you pray to God, can I just remind you that you are actually praying through Jesus Christ? You're praying in his name. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you be lifted up in our lives. Even as you increase, we might decrease. Even as we pay the cost of following you, maybe quite uncomfortable. I pray that we'd be a church that would point each other regularly to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Fellowship of his sufferings. The power of his resurrection and that we would be made more and more like him, even in his death. We ask all this in his name. Amen.